Welcome to season six of the RAG podcast. Now, for those of you who don't know, the RAG stands for Recruitment Agency Growth. And this show has been around since early 2019. And every week, we are obsessed with finding out how the world's most successful and innovative recruitment agencies and their founders have got to where they are today. In season six, alongside the founder's story and the inside information of that business, I also want to focus on the reality of today's economy. There is so much noise about this inevitable recession that we find ourselves in right now. And where it's going to go, is it really having an impact on the recruitment sector? Are they seeing any change in job flow? Are they seeing any change in candidate control or activity? What is going on? I want to find out. So every single week, I want to forget the propaganda, forget the noise. I'm going to speak to a real life recruitment owner and find out what is going on in their business. I'll bring it to you every single Wednesday from 12 o'clock across multiple platforms. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the RAG Podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Simon Hare. Simon is the Managing Director of Precision Sourcing Group, a business headquartered in Sydney, Australia, with 31 recruiters looking at product services, SAP, uh, data and software development. Now, I've wanted to have Simon on for a long time. I've worked with him for over two years um, and for some reason it's never happened, but um, the timing is perfect because last week he got voted the recruitment, the Australian Recruitment Leader of the Year Awards at the TR Awards, um, nominated by his team, celebrated by his peers. Um, you can see why in this interview because we spent the last just over an hour talking about his career from being a school teacher like myself in in the northeast of England to moving to London, getting into recruitment at Harvey Nash Group in London. Going and working in a number of different environments, having some big corporate work, and then taking the plunge to move to Australia with a young family um, to build the business that was founded by Jill, his previous boss in his first recruitment career. Now, Simon is, I'd say, top three clients I've ever worked with. This guy is seriously organized and motivated. He took everything I taught him in the pandemic around branding on LinkedIn, and he drilled it into his team before I even offered the solution for clients' teams to come and work with me. Since his team have then gone and worked with me as a collective of over 30 people, they now are one of the most well-known brands in Australia in their market. Um, Over 23% of their net fee income last year, which is well over $2 million, was generated directly from their activity on LinkedIn. And that doesn't even include the work they've done with candidates. That's just clients they can track who've come in inbound or they've managed to source via the interaction through LinkedIn. So I'd say he's building the most socially engaged recruitment firm or one of on the planet. And the way he explains it makes it sound so simple and so achievable. He's doing so whilst also driving the four-day week so they now don't work on Fridays. He's navigating through um, the early signs of a recession in Australia. He's got a young family still. Um, and uh, the the word I would use to describe Simon is he, he just appreciates life. He appreciates everything there is to offer and he has an open mindset. And that's evident in the in the episode and also in the business that he runs today. So anyone who wants to grow in a modern, innovative way, who has an open mindset is going to love this episode. Without further ado, Simon, welcome to the RAG podcast. Thank you for having me, Sean. I've been waiting for you to ask me. I know, I was going to say that. I was like, how's it took us this long? 
We've been I working like, for two years. Why has he not asked me? <laughs> I think it's the time zone, you know. I think I'm not being... Um, I, I, I definitely do gravitate towards, like, local people just based on the time zone, I think. And uh, yeah. I don't know, the Australian audience, like, I always feel a bit guilty asking them to do things at night because I can't do it at night. So I'm like, you know, what time is it where you are now? It is... 7 38 p.m. Yeah, so it's just getting exactly. dark. Now. And it's 8 30 a.m. here. So I, I my podcast recording is in the morning because you can't I cannot get energy out of me after about six, seven o'clock. I'm, I'm yeah, dead. Okay. So I'm not if I was on the other end now, I wouldn't wouldn't, you know, at the end of the day, I wouldn't be wouldn't be the same guy. Um yes. but mate, we um we, we're gonna get into it. I want you to do an introduction in a minute, but we just found out you're a, you're an award-winning recruitment leader of the year in Australia yeah, so yeah, yeah. right behind you so tell us yeah. what, what did you just win the Daxtra recruitment leader of the year recruitment leader of the year yeah. in Australia 2022 yeah well done mate how, how does it feel how's it feel how does it what sorry how does feel? It feel yeah felt really surreal actually because <clears throat> why did it feel surreal because well, first of all, there was a lot of people at this award ceremony. It was the last award of the evening. It was 16. <laughs> we were up for another two awards, which I fancied our chances, and we didn't get yeah. a mention. Wow. So I was thinking, this is like, this is a FIFA job, this. Mm. <laughs> I'm one of them as well, where like, if I don't think we can win, we're not entering. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm, I'm like that. I'm very much like that. And uh, the team insisted on putting me in for this leadership award. And Joel, you know, Joel, he, he did all the work and the team did all the work. And I'm always thinking like ROI, ROI, because a lot of work went into it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was starting to get a little bit dark, if I'm honest. And then um, <laughs> when, they, when they said my name, our table was right at the back and it was the longest walk. Just erupted. Yeah, so I was really happy, yeah. So it feels, um, yeah, it feels pretty special, to be honest, if I'm honest. And that's obviously... Nominated by your um, by your team, by your business, yeah. and, then, and then voted for by a panel that are looking at other teams. So you're right, yeah. And ultimately, your your you know what they've said about you and, and the things you've achieved together must be compelling enough to win it. So that's impressive. Yeah, I think they sent a lot of video footage and stuff, and they've sent it to me. But I just I hate watching that type of stuff. You know, when mm. people say nice things, words of affirmation, just mm. kind of. Creeps me out a bit. Well, you're a Geordie, aren't you? You don't you don't love all Mackham, that. Mackham. Sorry, a Mackham. But like, in the I think in the north of England in general, it's one of them like oh, you don't want to I don't want to hear praise, like just oh, man, leave, nah. leave me out of that. Yeah. Um well look, Simon, well done. We'll get into probably a bit more of that in, in the show. For this there's gonna be a lot of people listening who don't actually know who you are, right? You're a yeah. Brit living in living in Australia. Yeah. Do us a favor, give me the bird's eye view of your job, your business today. I don't want the history, we'll go through all that. Just if, if someone's like, what is precision and who, what do you do? Give us the answer to that. Yeah, yeah. So we are, we specialize in four areas SAP, data, or data, uh, depending on where you live, um, <laughs> project services, so BAs, PMs, agile, and software engineering. So they're the kind of four pillars of our business. I'm the MD, so I'm responsible for, I suppose, coordinating and kind of responsible for coordinating when we come up as a leadership team for the vision and then what's the goals and then what's the strategy and executing that and basically make sure we're, that we're adapting along the way, if that makes sense, and make mm. sure, you know, people are in the right roles and responsibilities and um, and driving the business, I suppose. Yeah, that's my responsibility. And how many people you got now? Uh, 31. 31. 
And when, what year did you find it? Found it again? I didn't find it. Jill founded it. Right. And then I came out three years after she'd founded it. So right. Jill hired me into recruitment back in the day at Harvey Nash right. in London. Right. I was a teacher like yourself. She fell in love with an Australian candidate and moved to the other side of the world. I continued with my career path, doing what I was doing and always stayed in touch. And An actual, an actual candidate of Harvey Nash. Really. An actual candidate, yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, and he's our FD now. Wow, so really? Jill and Rick won half. And I, I own the other half. Yeah. yeah. And um, she made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Um, so I went kind of the corporate route after Harvey Nash. So let's go people. back. Let's go right back. So you're from Sunderland, right? And you yeah. moved. When, how did you get into recruitment in London? What was the story there? <clears throat> so I was a teacher like you, and I was giving kids career advice and stuff, and then just thinking, hold on, I'd quite like to do that. So I was a bit mm. confused. I was like 22, a teacher, and I was like, I was like that, exactly. I've got more in me than yeah. this, if that makes sense. I love the job. You know, the money's like, I loved London and I was like, I want to live in London, but I don't want to teach in London. And I had this friend and she was like, you should get into recruitment. I've got friends who've gone into it. You'd be amazing. You should get, and then I had other people saying, get into sales, get into sales. And then I just Googled recruitment and I rang the first, and I was in my classroom and I Googled erect to wreck in London. They just like laughed at my accent and stuff. I'm just like, just <laughs> I tried the next one and they were in Covent Garden. They're like, yeah, come down for an interview. So I pulled a sicky kind of got the train down to London for the day at this interview and um, came home and then over the Easter holidays, they just arranged that two week period. Like I must have interviewed with every company in London, every type of recruitment you've ever heard of. Yeah. yeah. I just accepted the first offer and it was from Jill at Harvey Nash. It was in Mayfair. Wow. I was like, this is amazing. Were you single? <clears throat> yeah. And yeah. I just accepted it there and then and just, Absolutely, you know, when you get into something, I was just like, I love this. This is amazing. So, where were you teaching? Where were you? Where were you living at that point? I was teaching in the northeast. Yeah. I was teaching yeah. in South Shields. I'm from Sutherland, so it was like yeah. went from that to moving to London. Mega, isn't it? The change is is unbelievable. Change was just incredible. I loved it. I just loved the fact that you didn't take work home. Mm. What did you teach again? Science, science, biology. What? Do you know what? I actually got challenged once by by a kid. I think it was year eleven, and I said um, I was giving them career advice as well, and they were like, "What do you know?" I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, have you ever left education? He said, you gone, what did you do after school? I went uni. And he goes, when what? And he goes, yo, you came in here. And he properly, he put me on my ass, right? And I went, yeah. Now that didn't, I didn't make that decision like you. I went traveling, landed in Australia and then did it. But yeah. at that point I knew, yeah, there's a, I, I felt too young for it. I felt too, you know, if this is my whole life mapped out in front of me. You can connect with the kids though when you're younger, I think. Yeah. You got yeah. more in common with them and, like, I remember every Friday night I'd go out with my mates and I had two or three like great stories from the week with the kids, mm. like funny stories. And like, I enjoyed the job, it's just the money Same, yeah. wasn't great. I didn't actually particularly find it that hard either. You know, you all these teachers who were really negative about kind of like the school and teaching, and I, I thought it was really good. But I'd go in the I'd go in the, the staff room, it was so negative and toxic no, about teaching, like get out of this while you're young, get out and like to be fair, if it was in a nice school in London, paying what recruitment pays, I'd still be in that, I reckon. <laughs> I remember, though, that they used to charge us 10p for a, for a spoon of instant coffee or a tea bag. And that's mad, isn't it? Yeah. Like in the staff room, you had to put a 10 pence piece in to get a cup of instant yeah. Kenko. Yeah. I mean, and then your Christmas parties were like, you know, you went to a pub yourself and paid for it together. Like, there was no funding, there's no money. And you don't know any different in the north of England in, in, in them jobs. 
Um, you did well though to go from that to pick up the phone to do that. Like it took me to move to the other side of the world to figure it out. You you figured it out in your in your classroom, which is pretty. Yeah, I just knew I was frustrated and I wanted something else. And then I just had mates saying to me, people who I'd kind of meet on holidays and stuff. You know, you go to your Beethers and Iron Apples. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. should get into sales. You should get into sales. And I just thought of like the kind of secondhand car salesman. I didn't understand what they were talking about. So it was just kind of, it was a girl actually, and she lives in Australia now. And I did ping her a message on LinkedIn saying thank you. So it was her who prompted me. Gail, hmm. she's called. And um, and I ended up living with her and a few of her friends when I moved to London. They worked for British Airways and whatnot. And they Where did you move? Moved West to Ealing. Ealing, West London, yeah. And yeah. what? How would you how would you describe your, I don't want to go into every year, but how would you describe your career as a consultant? <clears throat> It's just like when I moved to London, it was just like, you know, you, I had so many mates who were like, you're going to feel that the streets are not paved with gold. So it was mm. just like, right, I'm going to make sure if I do feel I'll be the hardest working failure. And I would just describe it as just a massive experience, just hard work, but like enjoyable and just in a, just taking it all in. Mm. I would just constantly as a consultant, just be going up to people who were high performance in, how do you do it? What are you doing? Just taking all the best bits of all these people and just implementing it. Yeah, just did that. And did you, were you one of the top performers? Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. What did you recruit? Um, desktop support, PC support, all that type of stuff. Yeah. Infrastructure operations. All of that. Yeah. Novell, Lotus Notes, mm. just like old school. Harvey Nash has got an amazing brand. Mm. Training was terrible. Like there was no structural training from the company, but the training I got from Jill, who's now my business partner and like really good friend. I was just really fortunate that she took me under her wing yeah. and like taught me everything I knew up to then. Do you know what I mean? And I yeah. remember, I can remember in the final interview seeing that her, if you don't mind me asking how much did you earn this month or last month? And she told me and I said, what have I got to do to earn that? And she said, just do everything I said. And I was like, <laughs> all right, I'll do that. And Sounds like the Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, it is the one. She was just like, like, so was like, you pay me and I quit my job, I come work for you. <laughs> and I remember when I got, like you started earning the good commission. I remember getting my first or one of my first like decent commission slips and saying to her, they actually used to get sent to my mum in Sunderland, believe it or not. And my mum telling me you you paid this amount of tax. And I remember pulling Jill into a meeting saying, Can I have a word? I'm paying this amount of tax. Like, what what is this? And she was like, No, that's what you pay. That's you're in the yeah, high tax. I was like, yeah. that's disgraceful. She was like, like, welcome to the real world. <laughs> like, that's how naive I was. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, same. Same. I remember um I remember my best paycheck because I was on contract. It was never like it was a build and it never went like one month. I get like this much and then it drop. It yeah. just, and then it, it got to the point. I think I got 28 grand pre-tax yeah. and I was just sat there. I think I came out with 16, 15 and a half, 16, but I had to literally email my bosses and thank them. I had to send the picture of the paycheck to my mum. Yeah. You know, it's more than I used to earn as a teacher in a year. Yeah. Yeah. I was earning more than the headmaster within like a year or so. Do you know what I mean? And then, and then I had all these mates in, you shouldn't do it. And I had, I had, when I resigned from teaching, I had the head of departments and things like that saying, like, be careful what you're doing and blah, blah, blah. And are you sure and stuff? So it was like pretty sobering to see that you could earn that sort of money so quickly. And Harvey Nash's comm scheme, it was crazy. If you did a 12 month contract placement, it worked out that if you place somebody for 12 months and it's 52 weeks, that they'll, work 42 weeks of the year or something yeah. that's what they tell us so they pay you 42 weeks of the commission up front 15 wow. i think it was so you could get this comms up front what if they, 
dropped out, out though, you'd, you'd have to play it back if they dropped out. Yeah, back, yeah. Which yeah. would hurt. You just have to place good people. Eh? Yeah, true. So, how did you evolve into leadership? I was just obsessed with leadership from like. I can tell. My, that. my half brother was an officer in the army, and I saw him when I was fourteen pass out at Sanders. I was like, "How can this guy, who a few years ago was singing Wham songs in his bedroom, now be responsible for forty men on the streets of Northern Ireland that quickly?" I was like, "How is he doing that?" And then, <clears throat> obviously, loved Manchester United. Saw Alex Ferguson come in. When I was about eight. Saw that kind of evolve. So I was always yeah. just fascinated by how somebody could have such an influence on other people, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, at a young age, I was reading books on it, like Shackleton and autobiographies of leaders and like Love Churchill and stuff like that. And mm. I always reading on leadership. And whenever I had leaders, I was thinking about the effect they had on me and how I would maybe do it differently and stuff like that. And like, yeah, I, I was leading teams at 24, probably too young, made some cracking mistakes and, like cringeworthy proper David Brent stuff, but that's <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> so what, how long were you at Nash in London for? Like two years. And then <clears throat> it was just after, what was it? Wasn't the dot com, what was that other recession? What year is it? It's like early 2000s, something happened. It wasn't the GFC, was it the war? In the Gulf War or somewhere? Ah, 9-11, So the massive recession after 9-11, and they bought a company in the US called Tech Partners because they wanted to, yeah, yeah. Kind of, and that obviously didn't go well. The timing, <clears throat> the idea was right, and they just basically they said, "We're um, we're not going to pay anybody any commission for six months until we kind of break even type of stuff." So I was just sat there. And you're doing placements, you're not getting comms, so it was just like felt really um, what's the word? Where you're just being stitched up, done all mm. You're running like forty contractors. Yeah getting paid <clears throat> worked your nuts off to do it i'm just like what is going on so um jill at that time had moved on to another company spring and she was just like we need somebody to run a team and lead a team and build it do you want to come mm. so off i went and i was there for four and a bit years and then i got the opportunity to go the corporate route and learn about kind of delivery and processes and structure and governance so then i moved to a company that was a subsidiary of manpower that was called elan right and um, part of the adeco no, yeah, yeah, part of um, Manpower. And was there four and a half years, and that was completely different. I was responsible for 50 people in four different locations, and we delivered into, like, five big accounts. I think we had about 2,500 contractors. So I learned all, like, governance and process and paying people, and it wasn't new business anymore. It was delivery and understanding that yeah, structure. Yeah, so that was a massive learning curve. And my boss there, he was amazing. I learned so much off him, a guy called Richard Jones. And then I got the opportunity, kind of, we'd had a... My first daughter, who's 15 now, and had the opportunity, Jill, kept reaching out to me. Who do you know who would move to Australia? Who do you know? She'd set up the business and it was going well. Who do you know? Who do you know? Who do you know? And then one day she said, what about you? And that led to a call. And the offer was just more than, like, I'd spoke to my wife then and kind of talked about this opportunity. We knew we wanted to get out of London because we wanted to raise a family. And um, we just said, let's go for it. Five-year plan. And here we are now, 15 years. So at the time, was it just a job to see how it went? And then you... Five-year like, five plan, see how we go growing the business, and then just fell in love with the lifestyle in Australia. We live in Manly and <clears throat> had my son, then had another daughter, and then you just you end up just falling in love with the place, you know? So what? how did it, How did you become an owner, though? Was that always part of the initial sell? That was, was part it? of the plan, yeah. So got 10% year on year based on the growth up to a half. Right. Right, so that was kind of the thing. So I wouldn't have made that move 
And like I said, Jill had kind of done what she'd done and I'd gone that way with my career and like that governance and structure and planning and vision and how to kind of bring it all together and stuff. I'd learned a lot. And um, in that time, Jill had moved to Australia. You know, she'd worked at Hayes and done her thing. So I kind of brought that value, if that makes sense. So why why did Jill want a partner? What was driving that? Do you know? It's a great question. So she wanted to have a family and she wanted somebody to help her grow the business. So mm. she, she took five years out of the business, had a break, had two kids. And uh, yeah, I cracked on. Was that your first five years then? Or was it? did you have a year or so together? It was kind of it worked out. The nice thing was that happened in a way for Jill was I moved over and then within a month or two, she went back to the UK because her dad was having an, an operation and that didn't go well and he ended up passing away. Oh, no. So that was really nice in that I could help her. She stayed in the UK for a long time with her mum and going through that process of grieving yeah. and, and I ran the business. I think that was for about three or four months, which was pretty hard because I just moved to Australia and I had four or five people in the team who were looking at me thinking, who is this guy? Yeah. <clears throat> Why is he telling us what to do and whatnot? He doesn't know the market, doesn't know Australia and hasn't done a deal in however many years he was in his last job or whatever. So it was pretty daunting. But it was nice to be able to help Jill by doing that, you know? Yeah. So let's let's go back to that then. What was it like? Paint the picture of the office, the environment, your home life. When And what, what year was this when you got there? Yeah. So it was two, I got married in October 2008 in Cyprus, then moved here February 2009. So it was absolutely frightening because it was the GFC. Mm. I was getting the ferry to work on my first day. Like recruiters on their mobiles saying, like, I'm tapping out. I'm going home. Like, I can't pick up any work. My boss tell me to do a contract. I'm on performance manager. Just that's all I could hear. I had some mates here, kind of mates who I used to work with in London and stuff who were living here. Similar kind of story. Like, I'd gone from kind of senior director level, if you like, back onto the tools. Jill had been really, really transparent. She's like, listen, if you, there's any bids that need to be done, you'll be doing it yourself. Like you are literally telephone CRM square one. So when I walked in, it's like, you just got a key, open the door. And it was just this office with just like, like it was just pretty like, but it wasn't confronting because she'd been really honest with me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So who, and how many people were in like the team? Clean slate-ish, if you know what I mean? It's like a clean slate and I could influence it. Um, but I remember things like calling Harvey Norman, who you know, Harvey Norman, a big retail yeah. company, and asking for Harvey Norman. So just like so clueless with the CRM and the local market. There's so many companies here, yeah, that yeah. Are massive that you've never heard of in the UK. So just yeah. like loads of clangers like that. Just, but again, same thing. It was like if I'm going like to phone, fail, some people who don't know, that's like phoning John Lewis and asking for John Lewis. John Lewis, yeah. <laughs> and then my wife rings me a couple of weeks in. She's like, I love Manly. Everybody's either pregnant or got a dog. I've got kids, like I love it here. So I'm just like, like it's just dark days. Where's your wife from originally? She's from um, Eastbourne, but I met her in London. Yeah, she'd been in recruitment since she was 17. So that worked out really well because she knew, she understood. Right, I'm going to be a weekend dad. I'm just going to put everything into the business. And same thing, if I'm going to fail, I'll fail as the hardest working recruiter in Australia. So I just threw myself into it, and she was amazing. You know, like supporting me and just I was a weekend dad with our daughter Lola at the time. Because obviously living in London, both with family, I mean Eastbourne's closer than Sunderland, I think, but it's still not on the, it's still not London, right? So were you because you were used to living in a place where neither of you had like first-hand family like down the street. Do you think yeah. that was what did that help when you got to Australia? That almost you kind, kind of, of um, it did, and it didn't. It makes you tighter as a family, definitely. I think. Like if I look definitely. at my wife now, we've just obviously got married. We've got two 
two stepkids, but her mum is down the road, her dad's down the road, yeah. her brother, sisters, her brothers. Like my family, because I lived away. I've lived in Australia, yeah. London. And I could live anywhere. And I'd yeah. land in Sydney or Dubai now and I'll be fine. But I don't think it's the same for her. So we, you know, yeah. hence why I'll be here. But for you two having that similar experience, it probably helped, yeah. I think, in that initial phase. Yeah, definitely. And um, But then there was times where she'd maybe be unwell. Mm. She's looking at me with like a two-year-old. I'm just like, see you later. I've got like, I've got a meeting at wherever client or can't like work was number one, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And um, I look back on that sometimes and think like, well, did I have the, like. Do you think she'd have accepted that if she wasn't a recruiter originally? Nah, no way. No. Absolutely no way. She's amazing. She's just like, just completely accepted it. And I can remember like being in the park at weekends and my daughter saying like, why are you on your phone, Dad? Why are you always on your phone? Stuff like that. Mm. And but it, it was like I knew it was for a reason that I really believe. I had a massive, massive sense of purpose. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You're doing it for them, effectively, aren't you? But ultimately, yeah. But I feel mm. sorry for my eldest daughter because she got the weekend dad, whereas my youngest daughter gets like, apart from COVID, maybe she gets like she gets the service now. Do you know what I mean? She gets mm. like different level. Um, yeah, and my son got kind of half and half. So how did that first year bedding yourself in, Jill obviously being in and out of the business, how did that go? What did you what did you do? I just like <clears throat> I just worked out because I, I focused, I worked out that the SAP market was pretty much recession proof. All mm. the like government, federal, state government was running it. All the big organizations were running it. I worked out that the rates were good. It was an aging kind of talent pool. I worked out, I spent about a month just doing the old Einstein before you chop down the tree, sharpen the axe. So I just kind of studied the market. We had some clients and stuff. I spoke to them and I was like, right, I'm going to do this SAP market of all the reasons I've just told you. <clears throat> and I just put out adverts, old school, just spoke to zillions of candidates because it was a GFC. Candidates would give me time. I was meeting two candidates a day, face to face. When I had my candidates, and I knew who my target clients were. I just got on the phone to clients and I was just like literally meeting five clients a week, getting in front of them <clears throat> and um, telling them that I was the number one best SAP recruiter in Australia. It wasn't true, but <laughs> I was telling them that. And I remember I started in the February, in the March, February and March, no placements. April 2, that client's still a client of ours now, by the way. May, zero, uh, May, May was one, and then June I did six. And then after that, it was just didn't stop. Mm. And it just ended the year. I signed up my last contractor on Christmas Eve. Got the ferry in the circular key on Christmas Eve to sign up a contractor who does that. Yeah. Mm. Took my daughter though. And I remember he brought her a cuddly toy. The Bendra Singer, if he's watching, probably not. And um, I had 38 contractors. So I was just like, all right, right. happening now. And then it was about, right, who can I get into the team to help me? grow the business and pass on the work too, if you know what I mean. And I was able to do that. And that was key, getting that first person in who I could pass work to and I could trust. <clears throat> and it took a while to identify that person. And then I remember going and like, you never have a proper holiday when you're running a desk like that. Never. Yeah. And you haven't got people who you can rely on and stuff. And I remember going on holiday with my wife one day and we were driving and the phone rang and on the Bluetooth, she could hear the conversation. And this guy, Ben, Ben Duncan, amazing recruiter. And um, he rang up on site. XYZ clients just called up. It was one of my clients. And they've got this job. I noticed on the CRM, 
that we've had the job before and I know it's that you've courted candidates before. So I've courted them candidates, I've spoken to them, closed them and I'm ready to send them. I just wanted to see if there was any reason why they didn't get the job. <clears throat> and I got off the phone and my wife was just like, he's just like, bingo, that's it now, isn't it? Like you yeah. said, because he, there was none of this kind of like holding their hands, you know, he just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you, that, was, he was he experienced? Yeah, he was experienced, yeah. And he'd just been stalking me on LinkedIn and I just one day said, do you want to meet for a coffee? And he, I could see he was new from the UK and in the SAP mm. market. I was coming up against him, so I just timed it really well. <clears throat> and I had four and a half years and years with Ben in the business, and then he left to go and set up his own thing in Salesforce. So he does really well. He's a good guy. Yeah. Good, nice. So that's probably one of the biggest challenges, I think, for, for business owners, for recruiters going into leadership, but definitely as a business owner, is, is getting that initial founding foundation of team around you yeah. that, that prepare what what do you look for now now you've got obviously much more experience in this but what do you look for in in that in those people that you need you think what what should people be looking out for it's like when we map it out with our leadership team and we whiteboard what we look for in people it's like there's about 50 plus things there but if i was going to narrow it down it's like attitude and doing what they say they're going to do because that's accountability it's that mm. attitude what is attitude? It's like people who've got an open mindset to learning, people who are good listeners and will take it on board, people who take direction. <clears throat> like I say, the youth of today, a lot of the younger generation, they like to work it out themselves and they like to kind of like, what's the word I'm looking for? They like to, they don't the way me and you would have just said, yes, sir, yeah, no problem, yeah, yeah. sir. How high do you want me to jump, sir? I'll go and do it. And I think, that younger generation are a little bit like, oh, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure. Yeah. If kind of, they've, got, they've got opinions on things, really. <laughs> yeah. So we look for people who take direction, basically. Mm. Like if I look at Jay, our greatest ever recruiter, the best recruiter I've ever worked with, he's got a room named after him at Precision Sourcing, build over a million for like five years every year, leads their biggest, most successful team. <clears throat> if I said to Jay, I've been on a podcast with Sean and apparently what the most successful recruitment business in Australia are doing is they're walking up pit street naked. Maybe we should try it. You go, all right, let's give it a go. Mm. Like that's his attitude. You know what I mean? He's like, he yeah. doesn't question stuff. He just, I'll give it a go and let's see how it goes. Like in how many million dollar recruiters have got that attitude? I don't know how many recruiters. Kind of have got well, that. I think a lot of million dollars should have that attitude to get to where they are. Right. There's yeah. some that will probably get stuck in what they were doing, but I think a majority would, would be open to change. What, um, yeah. What do you think, when it comes to building that team, what what do you have to do or what did you do to foster an environment that would grow? So, like, it's, it's very different being <coughs> you and one guy to you and 30 people. Like, it's, a, it's yeah. a, like what's the, what's the first yeah. steps you need to put in place? So, the, one of the first steps I think you need to put in place is what is your recipe so how do you what is your methodology of recruitment what mm. is your process and ours is called the bible we're on the third testament we're getting to put online portals videos all like, like your like your academy yeah? mm. and once you've got that defined you then need to have a program of how you coach and teach people that and how you assess them and people learn in different ways people learn from watching a podcast from listening from watching from doing from <clears throat> reading from whiteboarding so your training and coaching has got to adapt to all the different ways that people learn. And then you have to be able to assess them. So you need to be able to go on a client meeting with them and see that they can do it in the real world other than just role play. Mm. 
<clears throat> and then you need to let them free and trust them. Do you know what I mean? And so it's about getting yourself kind of getting that recipe put in place, I think. So if I was starting up now by myself, I'd have my Bible set out. And then when I hire people, I'd be coaching them through that, if that makes sense, and ticking off when they can do it and you feel comfortable that they can do it. Mm. How over the, obviously, what are we on? 13 years into your journey now. It's nearly it's 15, I think, in yeah. Australia. 2008. So, 2008. So, yeah. so how, how has that journey, obviously, it won't just be a linear growth upwards. Like, when has things gone gone? When have you found difficulty? Let's not talk about COVID because that's the obvious one. But when, yeah. have you, when have you found challenges that perhaps you didn't expect? And yeah, definitely. Had, had yeah. So the, the, the the biggest challenge was probably we were smashing it. Jill's disappeared for five years. I'm arrogant. I'm like I am the man running this. And you think you're going to surf that wave forever and everything that you touch turns to gold. And what I and we should have done then is got more help around us by experts who have done it and been there and done it. Mm. And I look at us now, our kind of leadership team and our board, we've got people like Greg Savage who chairs our quarterly mm. board meeting, 35 years plus experience, seen it all. Got people like Paul Masters from a finance point, point of view, just like kind of that's all he does, the, the accounts and finance of recruitment companies. We've got... Mm. A guy called Stephen Shepard, amazing, helps us with strategy and stuff every six is months. Or so. Is he the ex Randstad? No, he's called Stephen Shepard. He's amazing. No, but did he work for Randstad in Melbourne? Don't think I, so. I used to work for a guy called Stephen Shepard in Randstad. I don't know. Maybe I don't think so though. And then we've got this other lady who works for a company. Um, it's her company called Leading Well. So she helps us with kind of leadership and development and people development and stuff. And then we've got another guy called Johnny Lee who helps us with sales and coaching and stuff. So we're just surrounded by experts. And a lot of the time, they're telling your recruiters what you've already told your recruiters, but it's a different voice, and they yeah, yeah. maybe have more credibility because it's a different voice, and they're doing it as a job. I don't know. Um, so that's definitely the kind of. But what went on when Jill did? Jill come back then? Did you have like so a what, what we did? Or something? We were smashing it in government, and we got offered the opportunity to go on. Um, a government panel called the Treble Zero Seven, mm. and we just like, oh, should we do it? We had a vote with our recruiters. Yeah, let's do it. And what happened is our average margin, which was sitting at about 18 percent within six months, because that government work was about twenty three percent of our business. Yeah. Then within six months, it became fifty six percent of our business, and suddenly our margin just tanked from seventeen eighteen percent to eight percent. Yeah, I remember our that, sales was going through the roof. I was on the government team at Randstad. It was like a 7% yeah. average. Yeah. So I would kind of like sales through the roof. Our cost is going up because we had an amazing comp scheme and whatnot. <clears throat> but our profits going down and our mm. margins going down. We were going to be turning the lights off. So we knew we had to change something. And that's where I saw Greg Savage talk at a conference. And he talked about that trend of what I've just said. Sales going through the roof, margin going down, profit going down. I was like, that's us. So I met him for a coffee and said, like, can you help us? And he just advised us and told us what we need to do. He's like, got to sack those clients where the margins and the terms are rubbish. You've got to change your comp scheme, change it quarterly, help your cash flow, you're overpaying, your comms is just like, there's not, a, there's not a recruitment company in Australia paying that, you're overpaying. So you need to kind of sort this out. So imagine they're telling you recruiters. How do you do that? Oh man, that was like, so when you talk about sleepless nights, mm. 
<clears throat> you're telling your recruiters, right, we're sacking 56% of your clients. We're going to move you from a monthly comm scheme to a quarterly one, and we're changing the comm scheme. And you can't lie to them. It's not going to be better. No. So it was just brutal. So obviously we lost a lot of people. <clears throat> and that how, was just... How many left in that period then? Because that... I can't, I can't remember. Only one stayed in recruitment. The others kind of was like, was at the same time as when you people had that kind of four-year visa and then they could... Yeah, yeah. Like I was so on it. Kind of, four, five, they did four year, they had all kind of came together. <clears throat> and it was brutal. Like absolutely brutal. And dark, dark days. And um, like the biggest learning from that was, again, have experts around you who know more, have been there and done it, that we would never put that comm scheme together if we'd had an expert there. We would never have signed those shit terms if we'd had an expert to help us. We've got a legal expert who helps us with terms and stuff now. Mm. Like, you've got to really be careful with terms of business. No deal is better than a shit deal. We've yeah. got to really watch that as an industry now really got to watch it because because that, that's always been like a tough one isn't it because you do think even me you sometimes think well that revenue wouldn't have happened no. if i'd not dropped the it? It. revenue is vanity profit is sanity and then what is it cash is reality and uh, we learned the hard way to the point that i mean and some of our clients must hate us when it comes to negotiation we've done full courses on it and everything we've got people reading books on negotiation and <clears throat> like we take it so serious because we beat we've had our fingers but massively and um i think as an industry we're just not very good at negotiation no. with clients with candidates we're amazing at it understanding their drivers and getting to the bottom of what they're all about and would they accept if offered but with clients it's like clients are like god yeah. whatever they say all of that and um yeah i think it's a real development point for our industry so without going into all the detail then what what would you say from a higher level you've learned about negotiation that you didn't perhaps know or, or have implemented before you, you've gone through this journey? Um, first thing that I said earlier, like no deal is better than a shit deal. Hmm. Definitely never do it on email. Don't rush it. It's, it's like recruiters were like, rush, move on to the next thing. Rush, move on. Like, actually slow down, send it to a lawyer. It's things like, it's not just margin, it's payment terms. It's the rebates, it's the insurances, it's all this thing. Like, these are all important, if that makes sense, and things mm. that you need to look at. <clears throat> um, I don't want to tell you too much, Sean, because, like, we use it on clients, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> but, uh, you, don't to, you don't have to give me the detail of, like... I, I, I had a one the other week with a client who were... Like, it was a pretty heated discussion on Teams. And I had a 20-second silence after I made my point with neither of us talking, just staring at each other. And he sport next. So like in a negotiation, it's well, it's really important to understand the power of silence. Mm. Also the power of like, you don't have to reply to that email immediately about that clause. Mm. And the other thing would be, that just drives me mad, like contractor perm. Like, what is going on with contractor perm? I don't get it why people just think that after 12 months they can take your contractor for free. When you think of it from a client point of view, <clears throat> they've experienced the great work of your contractor. You should be rewarded. Like, you've done a great job. It's a safe hire for them. Hmm. But instead, we just say, bye-bye, take them, no problem. Actually, when you're kind of forecasting your business for the next 12 months, you'll think, I, I could probably extend this person because I, I check in with them every month. They love yeah, the job. Yeah, yeah. 
client loves the job, I'm forecasting them for the next 12 months. Like none of your big four, your Accentures, your KPMG, they wouldn't let anyone do that mm. to their resources on site at a bank or somewhere. But in our industry, for some reason, it's just, comp sorry, it's my dog. They just completely accept that your resource can be taken for free after 12 months. And then the client says, oh, because it's the industry norm. Well, actually, it's not the industry norm with the 180 contractors that we've got. No. And the 400 plus persons we did last year. So like, we're really firm with our clients and kind of, what is it? Hard on the problem, soft on the person. Yeah, I like that. And I remember, yeah, it, it kind of, clients, it's, it's, it's the fact they don't value the ongoing bit. They value the finder's fee and the fact that you've, you know, you've brought that person into their business. But beyond that, all that work you say you're doing in the background and yeah. they're not, they're not interested in it, are they? They're just seeing the bigger picture and thinking, well, you've, you've, done, you've done your job. You've been paid for a year, bugger off. Yeah. And then what is it? They say this, oh, you've got your fee for 12 months. Well, no, we're mm. running a business here. We've got to pay comms. That person who's done that placement, like they didn't get up and running immediately. You know, that might've took 12 months. We host podcasts, we host events, we run market reports, we've got CRM systems to pay for, you've got your kind of your cost yeah. of business, all of that. Like this isn't just an advert that we just flicked over. <clears throat> we might have met that person 10 times or interacted with them with 35, 40 calls before actually we've come to yeah. place them. Like we've been seducing them and doing what we do for years. Do you know what I mean? And I think yeah. a lot of clients maybe don't understand that. And a lot of clients in talent teams, sometimes they can be average field recruiters who haven't had that success they're a little bit bitter on maybe recruiters yeah, yeah, in the industry yeah. to a certain extent they're a little, how many times if like drives me mate, you, you'd speak to somebody from talent and say oh i used to do your job did you hmm. really you were as good as me at this <laughs> you won't be sat there <laughs> yeah you still probably be doing it but you can't say that obviously can you yeah. and then you get some really good people in talent who really appreciate yeah. <clears throat> like the service and the get it and stuff. And we've had some clients come to us in the last 12 months. They're like, we need to talk about terms and we need to change this. We'll get the markets changed, you know? I'm interrupting today's episode to mention our sponsor. Talent Ticker are here to help everyone who are in such a candidate short market, right? So if you're looking to grow your recruitment business in 2022, you know candidates are important and Talent Ticker are here to help. What they do is they help recruiters work smart and not hard. They've got over 300 agency clients, recruitment agency businesses that use Talenticker, and that helps them connect to the right person at the right time for the right reason. Okay, it also automates a lot of monotonous tasks we use and provides simple tools to identify ideal and off-the-grid candidates, people that are under the radar for open roles. So if you like the sound of finding more deeper level talent that's not exclusively on LinkedIn, for example, then get over to www.get.talentticker.ai forward slash Hoxo. You'll find the link in the episode. Go and take advantage of the special offer they've got on there for our listeners. When it comes to the business then and the growth, what did you set out when you first went over to Australia? Yeah. Like you've got 31 people, which is a great size yeah. business, but there's a plenty of bigger businesses in, in Sydney, right? And and across the world. So what was the vision? Was it to be a certain size? Was it was it was there something you've been trying to achieve? And and are you are you at, are you on on track with what you wanted? Yeah. So like we had a five-year plan, and that's what I'd learned in the UK with business planning and that type of stuff and having a plan. Like if I think mm. back to one of my bosses in the UK, 
when I worked for Spring and they'd acquired a business. I went and worked with this amazing guy called Simon Mace. You should get him on it. He's an old school MSB recruiter. But I remember him sitting down with me and he was my boss. And he went, Have you, what's your plan? And I went, oh, I'll get on the phone, speak to candidates, get leads, chase them, speak to clients, pick up some jobs, fill them. He's like, no, but what's the plan? And I repeated it. He said, but what's the plan? I said it again. He was like, like that's not a plan. Yeah. And he taught me how to have a plan and a vision and whatnot. So the plan for five years, like we smashed that. And it was more a case of like sitting there with my wife and Jill and Rick to a certain extent and saying like, let's just keep going. Mm. And then obviously <clears throat> we had that massive blip that I told you about. And like that must have set us back, Sean, around three or four years minimum. Mm. Just saw our contractors just... Yeah. When we went off that panel and stuff, you've lost your, you've lost recruiters. <clears throat> so that was then about kind of regenerating and starting again to a certain extent. And we were also a bit confused about what we were. We were trying to be everything to everyone. Yeah. If we had 20 recruiters, we'd have 20 people in different verticals. And then we got somebody in, an expert, who was like, what are you doing? You're really good at SAP. You're really good at project services. You're really good at data. Just do them three. Everybody you hire rookies or whatnot or experienced people in these markets they do really well because you're good at that why are you trying to do all this other stuff yeah, so yeah, yeah. That. and then we've added in software engineering because we got the opportunity to get a great recruitment of leaders we've got three in that team now so it's like the other lesson will be stick to what you're really good at and become an expert in that you don't have to be everything to everyone you know yeah yeah so you get hung up on like 50 recruiters 70 recruiters 100 recruiters like i don't when i meet recruitment mates like emily staff now emily staff yeah, now, yeah, yeah. like it's actually about your EBIT and what culture you've got and what type of what what love and support and culture you're providing for your team. Do you know well, some people mean? aren't bothered about EBIT at this stage, are they? They are just trying to hit a number of heads because they they say like, what was it? Spencer Ogden made no EBIT for a period of time until they got to like 160 people or something, and then when they stopped growing, the EBIT just went woof. But personally profit is important to me and i'm sure it is to you and it's something that you want to keep maintain while you grow rather than sacrificing it all yeah. for for a future payday yeah we're like sustainable profitable consistent growth like we're not about in a quarter putting 10 15 people on <clears throat> and thinking a third of them will work out to like be more strategic than that and give everybody the best possible chance of being a success how do you do that you give them time you make sure that induction's right, that they're supported. Like, we're not about that. Might be wrong. What sort, of, what sort of growth percentage do you look at annually, like, from a both from a top line, bottom line, and headcount? <laughs> so, in COVID, what we learned was get away from these annual business plans and these three-year plans and stuff, and we just go, went quarter to quarter. So yeah, it's no. like survival, and that really no, worked for us. So now, like, we have got a... 12 month plan if you like but it's more between like the board and it's not the end of the world it's like just projection it's more about every quarter you sit down with the leaders of your pillars of your business and you say what do you think you can do this quarter what will your team do and then you work backwards from that and um and there's even a loose three-year plan as well but if i look at that three years we had a three-year plan kind of just before COVID there and we absolutely smashed that but in between that who would have known that was going to happen? Mm. And all of the strategy stuff that we said would get us to smashing that three-year plan, just we didn't do because yeah, of COVID. Four-day week now, working from home, <laughs> Hoxo, um, digital marketing, podcast, like none of that was in the plan. So I think we can get a bit hung up with kind of 
having a three-year plan and like have goals and stuff and have an idea of how you're going to get there. But it's Mike Tyson who said, was it, you know, you can have a plan, but then you get hit in the face. <laughs> That's like, that is very true. That's like when someone leaves or the market turns. Like even now, like, you know, the market is changing. Definitely in the UK, it's getting tight. Yeah. No doubt about yeah. it. You have these strategy days and you stand up and you, you present these three-year plans to the team and like that younger generation, they don't know what they're having for lunch today. Or like, mm. do you know what I mean? It's like, mm. and you're talking to them about three-year, they're like, what are you talking about? Yeah, they don't so give a shit. Like, whereas you, we do these quarterly sprints and they really buy into that, if you know what I mean? Yeah, and you're like, this is what we're going to achieve, this is what we're going to get. Yeah. I like it. Well, let's go back to work when the whole thing about us working together because I would be, look, I'll be honest, I think you guys are probably, you know, you're one of, if not the best client we've worked with in 4,000 recruiters and over 200 agencies, you guys have took to my method and vision to another level. right? So to backtrack a bit, I walked into the pandemic with a bit like I just got punched in the face. We'd had the best February. We were running a physical marketing agency, which had about yeah. 35 clients. We had 15 people in an office in Bethnal Green and Hisham had just left about a year before, just under a year before. And and basically, I'd had this idea of a personal brand training program and then he left and did it. Like I wasn't ready to to throw yeah. another product at the business. And he, he went and did it. And I watched from afar and he did some good things and whatever, but he didn't do it how I wanted to do it because I never really got to that point with him. And yeah. then I'm sat there in the pandemic with fucking... The panic, the panic I had was I'm still not a, a, a marketing account manager. I don't sit there running accounts for clients. Like I was the front front of it. I was a sales guy. I was the LinkedIn face. Yeah. And I thought if I have to let go of everyone, or if shit really it's the fun. And it's like, you know, I interviewed Greg Savage and he's like, cut hard, cut deep. And I'm like, if I cut to a certain level, I'm fucked because I don't do it. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, it's not like I go back to recruitment. I don't do the job. Yeah. So I was like, I've got to build something that I do, that I can do. If, if, if worst case scenario, I can generate revenue and not yeah. need anyone. And then I looked at the things that I'm good at and, and it just kept looking, I kept going back to LinkedIn, this idea I'd already had. So I sat there in my bedroom whilst I'm going through a breakup and it was just the maddest time ever. And I built out this ridiculously long course. It was 16 weeks at the beginning. Yeah. And I think you I think you joined when it was, did you join it when it was 16 or was it 12 weeks? I think it was 12 it was weeks. 12. I just cut it down. You, yeah. I did it in April, May. I think May was the first one. I think you were July. And I realized yeah. after two months this doesn't need to be so long and i cut it down anyway so you joined and like, i think you just got it from day one but th let's talk about your tell us about your experience and what got you to that place in that pandemic <clears throat> so that place and what with hoxo yeah, to even think like i should learn something new because so many people did it but i'm sorry when you look at an industry, most didn't. Most didn't want to innovate. They wanted to protect and, you know, save every penny and let everyone go and sit there and just fucking. Bury so I was them. looking at. We only let one person go, a rookie. So I was looking at however many recruiters thinking, there's no jobs for them at work. Got to keep them busy. What can we do? So it was just like let's bring value to our clients and candidates to our communities because we'd already we, we used to run events and stuff and. Mm -hmm. Like, how can we bring value? So one of the first things I did was reach out to every kind of program manager, CTO, CIO, and say, give me one tip about how you can run a project remotely. And they all replied back, cleared at that, put that into a document, bosh, send that out. That's value. Get, awesome. your, get your candidates speaking to, sorry, get your recruiters speaking to clients to ask that question. 
then we got such an amazing feedback from that. It was like, right, what can we do next? People want to know how to run a, run an SAP program remotely. Right, same thing on the phone, sending out the survey. So we were just basically just doing stuff like that all the time. And then just value, value, value. And then into the webinar stuff and <clears throat> just looking at how we can bring as much value as possible. Now, at the same time, Pete Watson said to me, like, I know you, you guys are all right on LinkedIn. You need to go on this course though with this guy, this absolute knob called Sean. <laughs> <laughs> and um, like, I was pretty like, Pete, we're all right on LinkedIn. We're like seven out of 10, we're fine. And he was like, seriously, just do this teaser, 45 minutes. So I went on there and I just came off with my tail between my legs. I was just like, oh my God. It's just so obvious the way you just opened my eyes. Mm. Like now, what, there's 830 million people on LinkedIn or whatever, and you were talking about being a gardener prospect. And I was just like, got to do this. So then I had to go to the leadership team and say, like, I want X amount of money to go on this course. And they're like looking yeah. at me like, are you mad? Mm. But obviously, I must have explained it really well. Yeah. And um, off I went onto that course, and it was a Thursday night. And I think you do it about five or six o'clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was working in the office. I'd kind of get the ferry in by myself. I was like the skipper of the Manly Ferry. There's nobody else. I'd work in the CBD with three kids and whatnot. I was just... In a small house, terraced house at the time, it was just like impossible to work from home. So I, I would do that course kind of five till six or six till seven on a Thursday night. Mm. I'd go home, watch the recording on the Friday morning, and then I'd chop it up into kind of a PowerPoint sessions for the team the following week. And I'd pass it on to the team in a way that I felt they could learn. Mm. And then that's up to them. Then they were like, they were really on board with it and they give it a go. And then we started to see a return. That's when I'm talking about that open mindset to learn and stuff. They were giving it a go. They were like bricking it about doing videos and putting out posts. And why should I put a picture out with my dog or whatever it might be? They, they, they were really scared, but they went for it. And um, we then put them on the course because they started to get ROI. Well, you you don't really like you were one of the reasons I changed the whole program, right? So that yeah. at the point of you joining, it was just it's just leaders on their own in small groups, and it was really it was brilliant. It was intimate, and I I loved that period of time. It was like the a counselor, group, wasn't it? Yeah, wasn't group, it? Yeah. That that was like a magic group of people mm. catching up once a week, and for the first fifteen minutes, you're like, "How are you out ten And all that type, and you'd have a chat. That was like leaders counseling each other on what was probably will be everyone's most traumatic time. Mate, I, had, I, had, I was doing eight hours a week of that. And it was literally, it was keeping me sane because I was like jumping on different groups and it was amazing. And then, but what I realized was as you were teaching, and I think Stella was doing the same thing. There was, there was more and more recruiters coming back into work that were, and, and more were, I was like, there's more people I could help. And it, it's genuinely about value. Right? I was like, if yeah. I just help one person per company, I'll have this bit much impact. If I could help, everyone in a company i could have a bigger impact and then that's when i changed the model and obviously then you've got your teams on it so how would you describe now the way in which you guys look at linkedin because the biggest problem the biggest problem that pisses me off still is people see linkedin as a, as a sourcing tool Nah, it's yeah. branding and marketing tool. They see it as a sourcing tool. And then as soon as yeah. you look at content, they kind of know you've got to do it, but they all think, or majority think in our sector, it's an additional task. So I've got yeah. my recruitment job here. And when I'm busy, I'm going to fucking recruit. But when I've got time, if if, 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 if if everything lands perfectly in a day, which never fucking happens in this job, then I'll, yeah, I'll do it. But it's a, it's an additional thing. It's not essential in the role of a recruiter in 2022. And I, yeah. I'm completely against that i think it's 100 percent 
a part of your day job. Oh, it should be 100%. if you want to if you want to be a future proofed business. Yeah, hundred percent. We had that discussion on Monday as a leadership team. So we miss out on some recruiters because they're like, "You'll not get me on LinkedIn doing videos. You'll not get me doing." And we every now and then we have that conversation of, "Have we got this wrong a bit?" And we should be open to TMP. And then we come back to actually, well, that's a closed mindset. No matter what yeah. the bill and how good they are, actually, that's a bit. That's yeah. not what we want in the business because we want people with an open mindset who try different things. So yeah. <clears throat> we had that conversation on Monday as a leadership team. But um, for us, it was just. Like again, it comes back to a culture where, like, we do role plays three mornings a week and stuff. It's that we've got a real learning culture of practice and trying things and stuff. And they were just, I taught them the Hoxhall principles, bite size every week, give them homework, go and do it, try your personal post, that type of stuff. But we changed our job description. So then it was like, listen, this is part of your job now. Job description's changed. Mm. Uh, if you want to get promoted, no matter how much you bill, you've got to show us that you're following the Hoxhall principles. It became part of our monthly sales presentations, digital Hoxo award, we call it. What else did we do? It became um, content creation sessions every week at first. Now it's like we'll do it once or twice a quarter. Um, celebrating people who are kind of really brave and, and pushing themselves out of the comfort zone. Just making it a massive, like whenever somebody says something, all you'll hear is, oh, that's a LinkedIn post. Oh, so what, what, what did you need to see then? Because this is the bit. What did you need to see in that first period together with me, with your team, for it to be like, yes? Like, what was it? What? Because this is the I, thing. How long is ROI? When do you get the result? Like, what did you see that made you go, I'm going for it? Like, you're very convincing. Very good salesperson of experience. So I really bought into you and what you were mm. saying. And I was like... Now I'm one of them, like, if I'm going to do something, I'll do it properly. I'm like, I'm not half in, half out. I'm like, hence why you've heard me say, you know, if I'm going to move to Australia, I'll be the hardest working. Yeah. So I'm like, right, I'm, I'm all in on this. <clears throat> and I think you said, I can't remember what period of time, but in my mind, I was like, I'll do this for nine months, see what happens, and I'll be, like, diligent with it. But then just had the team coming back to me going, like, oh, my God, I've just had this work coming. And... Mm. It was off a LinkedIn post. And I had this come in and they said they'd see my LinkedIn. And I started to see in my like community of like friends and I don't people like looking at you on the ferry as if to like and you're like <laughs> I don't just this. I went to a meeting with Jay and we're in like we're in a um, cafe in a part of Sydney and there's like this table of like randoms looking over and one of them just shouted, "Hey Jay, LinkedIn." We know you. <laughs> we went to another client. We're in reception and there's this guy just staring at us and he's in a meeting room. He's staring at me and Jay. And then he just came over and he shook my hand. He went, oh, Simon, LinkedIn, I've seen you. And he's like a head of whatever client. Like, So this sort of stuff started to happen, which is kind of like, you can't really track that as ROI. No. But we tracked the ROI for last year. I think I told you in 23% of our margin. And I didn't have a deep dive. I just did a kind of, how, how many placements, yeah. how many, just did a kind of quick round table thing. Like 23% of our margin came from um, LinkedIn, just on the clients. That's without candidates. So many over, candidates, obviously. Over two, million, over $2 million worth of business yeah. that's, that's tracked yeah. without even looking at candidates. It's, it's mental. Yeah. It's yeah. So that's kind of like, it's just a no-brainer. It really is. And um, like it's just part of our business and culture now. Anybody who joins goes on Hoxo. Do the induction, what we have our own induction on Hoxo and kind of getting their LinkedIn yeah. profile ready, what and then we put them on the course, and then they've got to kind of the pass probation, they've got to show some evidence and kind of all of that. It's just all part of what we do. And then if they're going for promotion, they must have shown us 
kind of took it to the next level and whatnot. And we've got some people who are amazing at it, some that are average, but they're all giving it a go in their own way. And some of the yeah. average ones, to be fair, still get mad ROI. Of course. Yeah. Well, and you're putting out kind of war and peace and doing these amazing posts that we see of some of they're just doing their thing, a video, whatever. But that's the bit that I'm I kind of I want people to know. It's like you one of the other gripes we get is I don't really like what I see from people on LinkedIn, so I don't want to do it. And it's like I don't personally like some of the shit I see. Like I'm on, I've just gone and started on TikTok, right? You're never gonna find me stood in front of a camera dancing, miming to songs and shit. Like it's just not happening. But it doesn't mean I won't use TikTok. I'll just use it in my authentic way, you know? You've got to be yourself. It's like, it's not about them, though, is it? No. They are a guide, as you say. Mm. They've got to understand their audience. Who is their audience and where they're hanging out? They're hanging out on LinkedIn. In our markets, they're 40-plus, generally men, generally. Um, that's where they're hanging out. What do they want to see? They want to be entertained. That's the number one reason why people go to LinkedIn. They want to be entertained. You understand their drivers, you understand their ambition and then ambitions, and then you create content around that. It's that easy. Do you know what I mean? That's simple, yeah. And it, like it's not about them saying, I don't like it. Well, like I don't like some of the kind of people I see at the gym with a massive flipping guns or whatever. But like, I mean you don't go to the gym though, does it? Yeah. No, so I say like, I don't like I sometimes go in a restaurant, and I think, what the fuck are they eating? Don't mean I'm gonna yeah, eat there. I'm just exactly, gonna eat yeah. smell. So that's that close mindset that we have. Yeah. And I get it, you know, you're a big biller and you're doing really well. Like, there's that kind of why would I do it? We're having success already. I get that. And that's I, I hope they continue with that so that we can keep <laughs> and there's that other there's the other thing as well. It's like, and this isn't just about what I do, but you get a lot of recruitment companies who they buy tools and software and training and stuff. And they kind of give their teams like this suite of options. And they go like, it was like, imagine, imagine Guardiola or Ferguson going, you could play this way or you could play that way. Like kind of go out and do whatever you want to. It's back to that recipe thing, isn't it? What's the recipe? And then tell them and they follow it. Yeah. And creating the DNA of how you want to work. Like if I look at Jack Grealish right now, who gets a lot of shit as a City player. And I'll agree, like, watching him, it's not the player you expected from Aston Villa, right? But Pep's given him a job to do. He's, he's yeah. playing. He plays in a box on the left-hand side, and he's not allowed to lose the ball, basically. That's his whole job is don't lose yeah. the ball, get fouls, get into the final third. And he's doing well when he when you watch him. He's doing what he's been asked to do. But the world yeah. is the world doesn't doesn't understand that. It may, Henri talked about it when he was at Barcelona. He's like, he, one day, I think he went on a run beat three, went to a different part, scored, comes back and got took off at half-time. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, it's, not what, it's not what we're designed. And I don't know. Everyone's to their own. But I think, personally, I, I'm more aligned to you in the way that I think if you can build a process for your team and, and a, you've got a vision for how you want them to play, you've got to keep pushing that vision rather than letting every single other person in the team dictate to, the, to your method. Yeah, 100%. It comes down to hiring the right people who have got that open mindset and wanting to do mm -hmm. it. And that's why we'll continue going on Hoxo because you're keeping up to date with kind of what's going on. So we'll learn stuff, do you know what I mean? Along the way, yeah. it's really important keep adapting. But and then um, you've also got the four-day week, right? So you've not only gone super social. Yeah. You've also dropped a Friday of, of traditional work. Yeah. Like one of the things that I would I'd expect, again, other owners would say, if they looked at what you've done is yeah. how do you keep people 
Well, how do you keep people going in, in a direction when there's so much change, when you're throwing different things at them? How do you make sure they still do the basics right when they're, you know, they're, they're learning other things, the, the working relationships changing? Like, how do you keep people sh- focused on, on the right, the right things? what the basics and fundamentals are. So like the basics and fundamentals are you post every day on LinkedIn. The basics and the fundamentals are you do what you say you're going to do in your Monday review. Like you just keep to the basics, if you know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's a lot flying around and stuff, but it comes back to you have a day plan in the morning, you stick to it. Unless something happens, a lot of work comes in or whatever, you stick to your day plan, you do what you say you're going to do. Kind of the basics of Hoxhaw, we know that if we get three first interviews that we've got a 94% chance of filling it. So when we get a job, it's like, okay, which it's not about sending three CVs. It's about getting three interviews. How do you get three interviews? You get your client on the phone and you explain why you've selected those candidates. <clears throat> we've got a fill ratio last year. Our fill ratio was, we filled every 2.17 vacancies. We filled the job. It's nearly a 50% ratio. <clears throat> so we don't work shit jobs. We push back on clients, we walk away, we get retainers, we get exclusivity. So it's just focus on the basics. There is a lot flying around. So you work out what your basics are, you just focus on that. Like if a candidate on the first call of briefing them on a job does not commit at the end of that conversation of accepting if offered, we don't put them forward. Well, on the pre-call of yeah. even before yeah so we asked them if they like you and you like them and they make you an offer of xyz working at xyz for this amount of time or in this location is that something you would accept that's the only closed question we ask and if we don't get a yes we don't move forward has that bit you in the ass before do you think well yeah you get the odd one saying but how can i answer that when i haven't had an interview yet so we understand you haven't had an interview but what we're saying is if you like them and they like you and they make you an offer at this amount that we've discussed to work in this location for this amount of time, if it's a contract, is that something you will accept? And if you get anything other than a yes, there's something going on. Yeah. Two or three other roles, or they're looking and for it, a counter offer, or I know that's pretty harsh. And when we hire experienced people, they're like, oh, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. I'm like, try it. I love that. What well, I think as an industry, we, we struggle with the difficult questions. Like we, we, people just want to hear what they want to hear. So they, you know, they don't ask those. It's like if I said to you, Sean, if I got you a million pounds a year to be Pep's assistant for five years, you would have to be based in Manchester. You can't commute. Is that something you would accept if they liked you and you liked them after you've gone to the interview? <laughs> I'm like, yes, but my wife will probably have an issue, but no. Yeah, yeah so I'll be like, okay, go and speak to your wife and then we'll chat again later. <laughs> I don't think he'd want me, mate. I just don't think he'd have to. Yeah, yeah. I'd be too, I'd have too much for him. I think I'd be too, I'd take over his hand job. Um, yeah. So we're, we're almost out of time, but where where are you, well, how would you describe where you're heading now? So you're at a point where the, the, the business is out of COVID, yeah, we're seeing, well, there is a recession. I don't know about Australian market, but in the UK, yeah. there's a there's a lot of recession talk. Things are slowing slightly. Yeah. There's still most of my clients are, are doing really well. But where are you guys? Where are you guys heading now? If you can describe the future, yeah, definitely. So it's like a, a massive transition phase for us. So our kind of like vision is we want to be like within our markets, we want to be the chosen ones. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. like if somebody's thinking about. I want to understand what's happening with salaries or rates or what's happening in the market. They think of us within our chosen pillars, our chosen markets. In terms of the business, it's really important that you have the right people and the right roles and you have the right structure. And we've now got different roles evolving and there's a different business need. Mm. 
So it's about putting those people in those positions. So I reckon next year as the business grows, we've just got to make sure that we recognize where there's a business need and we put people in those positions. So for example, Joel, we've moved him away into a very important role for us. He's not heading up the data team anymore. We've got two young leaders coming through there and he's focused on developing that top 20 clients of ours. So where we're doing work with them in SAP, they'll then know that we do data as well and whatever. So he's focusing on them and he's doing some operational and project stuff. But I expect that role to separate. And then I think we'll have somebody else who'll come into a pure kind of new business BD focused role. I think we'll have more of a delivery kind of team as well, where, you know, we're really fortunate that we've got a lot of 360 people and they're amazing. But I think that's not realistic. Long term, as we grow, it, always have people like that. So we'll have a delivery focus. It's a lot of work we walk away from because it's not within those four pillars. Maybe we could have a delivery team with a delivery manager who looks after <clears throat> delivery in focused on those vacancies that are not within our four pillars, you know? So yeah. this is all stuff that we're thinking about and talking about. And I think that's how we'll kind of, we'll take it. And um, if you look at your life, what do you want from the future? Personally? I like your health. That means nothing if you're not healthy. And then that of your friends and family, isn't it? So like number one, health. Nothing else matters after that. Like and take care of everything else. Mm. So I've got my health and I'm, my family has. I'm really happy. When it comes to your, let's take that as a given. Let's say that's okay. What what yeah. needs to be there in your life in the future to keep you motivated and happy and and you know focused on 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 what you're doing? So like I've got a massive sense of purpose right now there, yeah? and. The only time I would say I would question that was that time, you know, when I was really, really, I was talking to that, it was like three or four years and I was like, wow. So I would say it's more the energy from working people with people who have been successful and you feel you're bringing value to them in their lives and you're seeing them kick goals and achieve what they want to achieve and you're feeding off that energy. So it's kind of really fulfilling. And then you're feeding off the energy of your candidates and clients who are telling you, giving you feedback that you've really helped them achieve what they want to achieve. You've helped them. So that kind of whole kind of holistic side of things. And then you provide a life for your family from doing that. I mean, how many other jobs are like, obviously there's teachers, firemen, nurses, doctors, and all that. But like finding a job is in the top three most stressful things in your life this year. Mm. Getting married, as you would know, and moving house, as you would know. <laughs> so it is a really purposeful driven role, I think. Mm. And the skill set is just immense for a recruiter of today. So like, I just love going into work and I'm working with young people and I, I'm learning so much from them, their ideas and how they do stuff and seeing them kick goals and achieve what they want to achieve and then playing a part in them and seeing them get married and buy properties and live the lives they could never have imagined and being part of that. It's just really fulfilling. Do you think Do you think there'll be a point where you'd want to step away from the being there every day and stuff? Like, is there a... Can't see that right now. Like, we're on a four-day week, eh? That, yeah. that's like there's not a day I, I take a ferry to work eh? i see dolphins i've seen shark. i've seen weird like it's not i'm from a council estate in Sunderland. yeah like do you know what i mean and like i'm like my mum was so poor when i was born i was in the top drawer for the first week because she couldn't afford a flipping cotton wow. stuff so like i'm just like i don't know what kind of in this book like i just love what i do and mm. i love using my brain, like coaching and training. If I could see like the perfect job would be coaching and training stuff hmm. in recruitment or sales yeah. or leadership strategy, all that type of stuff. But then if you become an advisor and stuff in the future, like maybe you lose that kind of 
connection of being part of something and being in there. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, I just love what yes. I do right now. Yeah, I know what you mean. I've I think, got to be um, careful because I've got leaders coming through who I'm sure will be saying like, what, are you going to move over? you got to give them, yeah, at some point you've got to give all the yeah, people. Yeah, my role will evolve, yeah. Yeah, but there's always going to be. I know what my strengths are and what I, what your strengths are and what you enjoy and what is the business need. If the business need suits my strengths, like I've got to move into that. And again, that's mm. why we've got advisors and stuff who kind of talk to us about that. Mate, it's it's incredible the way you and I get the word appreciate appreciative is what I get from you. Like the way you said that about you know you just love it. I feel like you appreciate every day. You appreciate the business. You appreciate your clients. You appreciate your candidates. You appreciate your suppliers. You're you've been a breath of fresh air to work with them because you do that. You're not. I think you're not seeing it. You see things through a positive lens, that open mindset lens, and you know it's amazing how there's so many successful people that I don't think do quite see the world that way yeah my, my kids go to posh schools and you know if you look at the bank accounts of some of these people the world would probably class them as super successful but unhappy marriages can't run for a bus because they're not the ship relationships with the kids and stuff like yeah. that so i think just the world's a bit mad in it with people's priorities and what the classes their focus and success so I spoke to someone the other week and he's on, he's on, he wants to be a hundred million pound exit. Like that's his, that's his whole mission. And I said, do you enjoy it? And he goes, I fucking hate it right now. And I think they're, you know, they're well over a hundred staff and he's like, I just hate it. I can't stand it. Like, but I know where I'm going. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I, I'll, I personally wake up every day and I have issues like everyone, but I enjoy my day. Like every, pretty much every day I like what I'm doing. So I'm like, Winning comparison is the thief of happiness, isn't it? He's probably mm. read something or seen something that's inspired him. He's thought, I'm going to do that and good on him. But is it what he really wants, or is it like because he's seen something or read something? And I don't know. Then if he doesn't hit that and he has a 90 million, yeah, exit, yeah. does he feel? I, I don't know. Well, is he, it. Or is he a failure if he's got a ship relationship with his mates and his kids and he's unhealthy, but yeah. he gets an exit for a hundred? Like, I don't know. It seems like somebody who's got to kind of work out what's important in life to me. I think so. I think so. Um, well, mate, look, thanks so much for your time. Apologies, obviously, it's a late one in Australia, but you've, you know, get back to the family now. In terms right. of anyone who's listened to this show who really, you know, is, feels inspired right. or wants to reach out, are you open? I know you will be, but if they just drop you a note on LinkedIn, you, you can understand that. Yeah. Um, and uh, obviously, it's, you know, it's Christmas is coming. You're going to be in the UK. Hopefully, I'm going to be meeting up with you at some point. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Week yeah, about five weeks in Europe. Amazing. Maybe some, next of, week. maybe some of the listeners will want to find you in London when you're when you're bopping about. But mate, thanks so much. Congratulations on your award. You deserve it. And uh, we'll get you back on in the future and see how things are progressing. Apologies about my voice. I was doing the siren on our Christmas party. <laughs> party so I lost my voice. <laughs> I sound worse, mate. Don't worry. Legend, mate. I'll see you soon. All right. Cheers. Bye. Thank you, as always, for listening to today's show. I truly, truly hope that you got value from it. That's the only reason I take time every week is to ensure that my audience, future and existing recruitment owners are learning from each other to make this industry that I love so much stronger. Today's episode was brought to you by Hoxo Media. I am the CEO and founder of Hoxo Media and we are the world's leading content marketing and personal branding agency for recruitment businesses specifically. So we are working with over 200 agencies and 2000 recruiters right now both managing the brands, producing content, building written video podcast content for niche recruitment agencies all over the world, as well as coaching at a desk level, individual recruiters in your businesses, how to be better on LinkedIn. That's how to brand themselves. That's how to produce content. That's how to use 
the opportunity on LinkedIn to get traffic to their profiles and turn that into business. We're coaching people all over the world every single day. If any of that sounds of interest, please do visit www.hoxomedia.com or drop me, Sean Anderson, a personal message on LinkedIn. I would love to talk to you. I'll see you soon.